not that I don't feel fear. I most definitely feel fear with everything that I do. I was scared of being overwhelmed by the darkness, by the uncertainty. They put the gun against your head, and they pull the hammer back, and you can hear the mechanism creak. And, and if I can become a boxer, having never done it before, I think it shows that anybody can do things. You just have to build up to it gradually. For all of human, humanity's history, the predictor of life outcomes has been our ability to deal with the unknown. And that means that you can create what you couldn't previously create. Because now you know more, so you can do more. You see more, so you can be more. This week's episode is a little bit different, as we veer away from Pirates and Rebellion and into Sam's new project, The Uncertainty Experts, a three-part interactive documentary that is scientifically proven to increase your tolerance to uncertainty. And after the year we've had, what could possibly be more helpful? In the same vein as Be More Pirate, The Uncertainty Experts is full of stories. It's based on interviews with some truly remarkable people who have each found their way through deep uncertainty and developed strategies that can help you in turn. And it's all backed up with some robust research undertaken by scientists at University College London that will help you to understand the brain science and why these strategies work. In a nutshell, it's an edgy experimental reframe of uncertainty as something not to fear or avoid, but to embrace. In this episode of the podcast, I chat to Sam and sort of lift the lid on the process of putting the documentary together. And we explore some of the concepts that really stood out to me. The Uncertainty Experts airs on the 9th of November. And if you go to the website, uncertaintyexperts.com, you can get a taste of some of the people you'll meet on this rather unusual journey. And you can take the uncertainty test and get a feel for what it's all about. Of course, also purchase tickets to the show, which are discounted until the end of October. And there's an even bigger discount for you pirates. Just drop me a line, alex at bewillpirate.com, if you'd like to get the code. So without further ado, we hope you enjoy the chat. Congratulations on the press viewing that I saw because it really was so good. And I just want to say that up front, especially for our audience, that it was so well put together and just really took you on a journey in a really manageable way, even though you are dealing with all these complex scientific concepts, like the storytelling comes through and yeah, it's great. I really appreciate that from you. You know, you know, I respect you an awful amount as a leader and as a human being and also as a brain. And you've held me to account and you're critical support on being a pirate is critical to where it got to but you've been very very good at challenging me and i know that you know me too so you know my flaws and you know with this thing it's a project that's in development so i'm trying to make up some of the holes by waving my hands around and speaking fast and i know you know my tricks and tropes for doing that kind of thing for backfitting when i don't actually have the information i'm trying so there's a small handful of people who are slightly triggering when i see they so seeing you there and there's just a few people because i respect your opinion so much and I, I respect your eye for detail so much and you've got a bit of a challenging resting place like and so I, I, I kept seeing you out the corner of my eye and you've given me really good feedback on this over the point you, do you really believe that and it's been very helpful so I, I had to stop myself looking to see what your responses were and you stand out and there's only two or three people on that call that, that are in that I say that not in any way in asking for a explanation I respect you and I respect your judgment and so it was good and useful to keep me on my game and I'm really really glad that that's your feedback. <laughs> 
that's just my face. I've had that feedback since I was in about year five that I look really grumpy when I'm just resting slash thinking. So don't take it that way at all. No, I thought it was really brilliant. And you shouldn't take that. You know, your face is very, you know, very nice. Thank you very much. And it's just, I'm in a heightened state of sensitivity too. So I'm reading like, and, and also there's a second level to it. And I've heard it from some of our pirate friends and they were like, this looks really great. Are you having fun with your new friends? <laughs> it's like also because it is a new project and it's very much evolved out of the work that we've done together. And as you took over the more pirate, knowing that I was going into something new. So there's a degree there of like, our relationship evolving, these projects evolving. To me, the, the link is so, so clear. I become aware that it's not completely to other people too. So it represents a shift and a change in our relationships. So there's also something that's also very precious and important to me. So, you know, there's a double level of awareness that I have around your views on this thing and seeing it evolve. Yeah. And I think that the first time you really presented all of it at once, I didn't necessarily process it all. And the link between this and pirates, yeah, I think it maybe took a couple of goes. And I think it was in this episode the other week that just a few things really stood out. Also, I just wanted to go back to saying like, you should know from doing this that you just have a negativity bias. So when you're reading my face and thinking, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm taking it badly, that is your negativity bias. And I just like to say that that concept, having watched the show again, I listened back to some of the other recordings you'd done with Catherine and I was like, oh, okay, well, I'm getting this. And then it made me do something. It made me do something that was scaring me that I was like, I was hesitating about doing because I kind of wanted it to happen. But I was like, oh, if it doesn't go the way I want it, it's going to make me anxious. But when I heard the negativity bias, I thought it probably is going to go my way. The evidence, you know, suggests that it would. And I am probably projecting the future feelings of anxiety I don't want to feel onto this right now. So it just made me do it. And it did come off the way I wanted. And I was like really happy. <laughs> so as you've said to me in other conversations, this program, The Uncertainty Experts, which tells the story of some incredible characters, is actually about you. That just came through for me in that moment. I was really nervous about using the pilot series to keep it as a kind of closed community because I didn't really know how it was going to go. And I think I very much learned the value of creating a community from you and what you've done with the Beam Pirate community and, and want to do that better this time around. And so I didn't invite journalists or anybody that would kind of skew or make it a less, I think psychological safety is a bit of a, not a very helpful term, but you know what I'm trying to suggest by that term. And so one journalist came along because he's a friend of mine and I, I knew it'd be really useful to have that kind of media opinion to help me then position the, the thing down the line. And his review is so lovely. And he's been a film and TV journalist for many years. And he said he's never seen anything like it and he couldn't quite put his finger on why the show was so interesting. At the midpoint of the show, I say, hopefully now it's become clear that the uncertainty experts aren't the stars of the show. And remarkable as they are, the stars of the show are you and they're just your guides. He said, and that was the moment I suddenly realised that's why the show's so interesting, because it's all about me. Right? And that is everyone's favourite, favourite topic. And I love talking about me. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was trying to give somebody recently some advice around, actually, it was Catherine. It was Catherine Tempel lewis the scientist on the show. And she's now joining me as co-presenter. And that's a big journey for the development that we've gone through. It's a big journey for me and you know, it actually mirrors some of the, the thing that we did together. You know, it's much better if you're going to work with someone, you know, share things evenly with them. And she's, annoyingly, a much better presenter than I am. But, you know, I'm very lucky in my professional life to have had excellent women come alongside me and make the ideas better. And that's Liberty, Be More Pirate, and, and now this. And in talking to Catherine, I referred her to the final chapter of Be More Pirate, which isn't my favorite chapter. I really held off writing it because I didn't know how to conclude the book. 
it was one I wrote the most difficult emotional state that was out, going on outside the book. And it's probably the one that I was most writing to myself. And it's entitled Be More You. And you've heard me make a trite joke that actually the first two thirds of the good bit, it's the bit that I felt most tipped into self-help. And, I, and so I, I said Be More You to her because she was talking about her confidence presenting and joining me on screen. And I went back and read it. And it's not that bad at all. It's quite good. And it was written to myself. And again, it's one of these clear areas where to me, the work is the same. I think the thing that I've always been trying to do is empower people to be more than they believe they are, but as much as they truly are. It's almost like I can see where that chapter leaves off, this work begins. And it's a very similar thing, trying to hold up a mirror for people's improved self-belief and opinion of themselves and, and, and a recognition of their abilities to be the change. Yeah, absolutely. There's so many things that sort of just landed really well, I think, in this time I saw it, particularly in the relationship to pirates as well. One of them was, we don't want to be safe. We want to be the best version of ourselves, which is the be more you, I guess, as well. But that felt really profound to me at the time because I feel that that's a barrier that I come up against in conversations with people about be more pirate a lot. It's trying to tell people to take a risk and also acknowledging, as we've discussed in many other episodes, the levels of privilege and ability to take risk, but knowing at a deep psychological level that actually safety is not the goal. It is something that we really ought to create awareness around. And that's not to say push yourself off a cliff edge, but it's to say, really, that's not even what you need and want at a deep level. I don't know anything more than that other than that statement just really hit me. <laughs> the point about negativity bias is one of the bits from the show that's really caught people's attention the show follows fear fog and stasis and you know you saw this because you were helping me with it in the beginnings of lockdown i was writing a series of articles and those articles i put a kind of question air at the end of each one of them eliciting feedback and then those questionnaires created the next piece of writing and through that i kept asking what's the real negative impacts of uncertainty and this model of fear fog and stasis came out you know this was what was really upsetting people fear and that was fear of loss fundamentally and that separation of things is one of the key things that drives us to play it safe. The irony is that playing it safe makes us less safe. And then the fog, the confusion, not being able to take a decision. And it's proven in uncertainty, we're less decisive. We're less able to have that aspect of judgment. And then the stasis, the stuckness. We both know what it feels like, and that's core to the rebellion. And we've said many times that the key rebellion of being a part is that one against your own self-imposed limitations. That stuck. And once I've got that fear, fog, and stasis, it kind of, we named the enemy. We've got a sense of what it is. And so now, whilst we all know, thankfully, the conversation around anxiety is, is mature and evolved, as is the conversation around you know, diversity, as is the one about social equality, as is the one about climate catastrophe. And, and you know how much they're all things that bother me. But my observations with liberty were very much like when we keep fighting these things as individual challenges, we miss the chance to find out what's beneath them. And in that instance, you can talk about young people and school exclusion, or you can talk about young people in care, or you can talk about young people and bad diets, or you can talk about young people. It's the same group of young people that gets stitched up all the time. It's the same group of young people who are disproportionately affected by those things, whether it's radicalization or realization or, or gender and identity. And so if you get to the causal matters of it, and that was the same with being a pirate, we're talking about the rules of business and the challenges, but actually underlying that is our ability to stand up, our ability to speak back, our ability to find ourselves and, and it feels the same there's the nerve that goes beneath because then when you find these bits of currency much like when we both hear people back saying i've been more pirate today or talking about what it means then there's a degree of ownership and that happens with a few of the concepts that came through to counter this fear fog and stasis negativity bias being one of them 
safety behaviors being the other. And it's really joyous to learning journey I had to go on, like the Catherine had to educate me on. And you know how allergic I can be to academic environments. And then to like found a way to communicate this quite complex response. And then here people have profound responses in that they've done something and then they can understand it in a way that they can own it. And like, oh, this works. This is really great. And then the, the stat that got me into negativity bias, right? This is according to the Science Foundation 2019 piece of research. The average person has up to 60,000 thoughts per day, of which 80% are negative. 40,000 of your thoughts are negative. <laughs> And what's really great is that 95% are repetitive, exactly the same as the day before. Feels familiar, right? But 85% of what we worry about never happens. And of the 15% that's left that does happen, 79% of the subjects discovered that they could handle it better than they expected or that it taught them something. The conclusion is that 97% of our worries are baseless and result from an unfounded pessimistic perception, which is called our negativity bias. It's amazing, isn't it? And if you extrapolate that, so the negativity bias they think is around 200 to 1. For human survival, you know, 2,000 years ago, it was around 1 in 10. So of every 10 opportunities that present themselves to you, 9, you think, oh, that might be dangerous. I won't eat that. I won't meet them. I won't do this. And when 1, you give yourself a chance. And if you pull that to now, the thing that really killed me was when Catherine put it across the 24 hours of a day. That would mean there's about 10 minutes when you'd go, oh, right, yeah, maybe I'll try that. That might work out. I feel quite good about myself. Perhaps I'll be able to succeed. <laughs> that means there's 23 hours and 50 minutes. Right? Nah, I can't do it. And it's really scary, but that's kind of feels about right. Yeah, no, that is quite <laughs> astonishing. There was another point when you mentioned the safety behaviours as a way to <laughs> cope <laughs> and deal. And there's a question that you you asked throughout the episode, not to call it an episode, about safety, about what you think you, your safety behaviours are. And then you ask a second question, which is what's your sneakiest safety behaviour, which is great. Because actually it did take two times. And when I had the sneaky safety behaviour, I was like, oh my God. Because at first I was like, oh, you know, procrastination, booze, etc., the usual, whatever. But actually, I was like, my sneaky safety behavior is my savior complex. Like, I want to rescue everyone so that I can feel better, <laughs> and do everything. And um, I can't even remember what it was that just triggered it. But I felt like I'd identified something that was important to be more aware of. We talk about this and you and I have developed this, this sense of you help me realize it. I quote this lots. When you're off the edge of the map and you're trying to navigate as a pirate, then you need a compass and the compass is about polarities and so it's very much about instinct and judgment and intuition so again the evolution of that into what i've learned with uncertainty experts is something called either interoception which is the relationship between our thoughts and our feelings and having a really equal dialogue between those things or embodied cognition which is recognizing that the brain can pick up about 50 bits of information in a second and the body picks up about 12 million or something so like as a receptor as an interface with the world our feelings are actually way more multi-dimensional i mean the, the, you know literally you think about your brain it, it sees this very narrow vision whereas everything you know around you is your peripheral senses based on your your feelings and in these two things it's really taught me this exercise of being a bit clear about the feelings and so that's what i say in those questions don't answer it until you feel it if you just say the first clever thing that's come to mind Great, but we're all trying to convince ourselves we're smarter than we actually are. You know, we all, even if there's no one listening, we all want to say the smart thing. And we also kind of want to get ourselves, my sneakers over here. Okay, it's fine, it's booze. I've already said that. So when you feel it, something happens and no one likes to be found out. When I work out the real answers to the question, and I now know they're the real answers because I get that sense of, wait a minute, looking over my shoulder, do I want to say that out loud? 
And that's really interesting to me because it's teaching me again another layer of honesty about myself, but also something about facilitation and conversation. And it's really awkward. Like I'm standing in my kitchen talking to however many hundred people and then not saying anything to leave enough space for them to try and feel something. And this amazing thing happened the other day. In preparation, I've done a full dress rehearsal. I found a company who really liked the idea of it and they were willing to pay me enough to test it. So I've just taken a whole cohort of a couple of hundred people through it. And you know the firm, but I won't mention them here for sensitivity. It's an automotive business. Head office is based in Milton Keynes. That's half the firm. So they were what the fuck is this? And it's just been dropped in their diaries by the CEO. He's like, this sounds brilliant. And half the business are based in showrooms and garages around the country, right? So it's not the normal kind of training that they get. And the CEO was you know, very interested to see how they were going to respond to it as well. Anyway, we're in episode three, which is all about the future and how do we determine and define the future? How do we make decisions about the future when we really don't have any rational information? How do we kind of determine and navigate? And one of these is about projection. The brain doesn't fully interpret some abstract concepts like time. So the worries that you feel about whatever's happening next week present in your body as if they're real right now. And that's why we get locked in both the pain of the past and the fear of the future. Right? The thing that you regret doing two weeks ago is still very present if you think about it now. Those emotions will return, as will the anxieties of two weeks from now. But in reality, right now, you're completely safe. So the body is easily confused by the brain and time. And that can work to your favor. If you really, really try to imagine a scenario two weeks from now and you know, really simulate it, you can begin to experience feelings that, you know, maybe not exactly the same, but close enough that you can begin to make embodied decisions. You know, my gut tells me this doesn't quite feel right. Even if I'm not fully there, I get a sense. You know, so this, this becomes a useful technique. It's called conviction narrative theory. I mean, it sounds like role play, doesn't it, really? But, you know, nonetheless, <laughs> give it a nice scientific term and acronym. Although, side point, that is my favorite acronym in the whole of science, CNT. And I keep, I keep referencing this back to the scientists that came up with it. And they'd like, yeah. That's the acronym. <laughs> Come on. Isn't that? A... No, no, it's clearly not. Anyway, so there I am with this like automotive business. We're running these sessions at 8 a.m. So it's not long after 8 a.m. They've just, they've just heard the story from a guy who nearly died in a prisoner of war camp. And I then like in my most profound and like dramatic TEDx style like talk, you know, because I'm again, I, I'm not that confident of the questions. I'm trying to make up for my lack of confidence by overemphasizing in this moment to consider how it feels you know two weeks from now and then come back into the moment and, and what's what's your body telling you and it was one of the best mic on moments on a zoom call ever because just somewhere out there in the country sean who works in the garage for this firm says oh fuck off <laughs> <laughs> and it just and you know that moment when some fucker is preaching to you just like oh piss off mate it was great because I've no doubt that Sean has experienced significant amounts of uncertainty in his life. Like, of course he has, and he's experienced them again. And probably part of the reason he wanted to tell me to fuck off was because he didn't like being made to think about something uncomfortable. But part of the reason was also because I was slightly over the top in my delivery. And so <laughs> in terms of facilitating conversation, in terms of recognizing the spaces people are in, in terms of me encouraging people to get close to things that are uncomfortable, and how subjectively different that is for everybody, it was a really good check-in of what I'm doing and how we're delivering it and the conversations that we're asking people to have and the emotions we're asking people to explore. Yeah, and I want to pick up on this in two ways, really, because first of all, despite you might not feeling that your delivery your delivery was a little over-egged on that, you know, you're testing new ground. And every single workshop we do and every time I talk to the pirates, we're always suggesting you should try to put yourself 
into the new territory and you are going to get people go back coming back being like fuck off mate i've never heard this before or this doesn't chime with what i expected in this session and i don't know how to take it and so you've kind of got you in the uncomfortable space of going oh do i do i retreat do i go forward do i retreat do i go forward with this because you're just navigating new stuff but then you've also got them and their cognitive dissonance, as you've described. And I want to just talk about that term for a little bit, because I had a really interesting conversation with a psychologist last week who I was sort of sense checking how we run workshops with her a little bit and always saying that phrase, try to be more comfortable with being uncomfortable and pushing people to ask difficult questions. And I was like, am I putting too much cognitive dissonance in here? And then I realized, and this is kind of a theory, but I think that it's accurate, that what we managed to do by almost creating awareness. And I think this is what you're doing with uncertainty experts, like creating so much awareness around how your brain works, things like embodied cognition, what that actually means, what's going on. You're dissolving cognitive dissonance around certain things because people go, oh, okay, I get it. So that's just how I'm supposed to behave. And so some of the idea of like, oh, is dissolving. And I think when we have been saying things to people like, it's okay to not know, it's okay to fail, you've got to try and test. And all those success starts with mess and all the phrases we use around be more pirate were essentially giving them some safety. So then when the the new concept lands, they're kind of like, oh, okay, it's okay that I don't know. Oh, okay, so I'm going to maybe get this wrong. And there isn't the cognitive dissonance that there was before, which I didn't really realise necessarily that was what we were doing, I think. Yeah, and I think that too. I think we intuitively felt our way through a lot of that stuff. I think one of the best challenges or areas of challenge I still get from being a pirate is that, well, that's all right for you to say that. And you helped a lot with this, like you know, me speaking to my networks of entrepreneurs and other people who've taken a lot of more comfortable and or familiar with risk is one thing, but you, know, you really helped us make sure that this was speaking to the people in the Navy, you know, the people for whom this is really uncomfortable. So, yeah, and we know that that's really subjective too, right? The experience of uncertainty and how that looks out in the world. So, yes, it would seem that the best response to uncertainty is to embrace it because it creates a greater degree of elasticity and ability to respond rather than react. And if you don't, you're going to fall foul of your reactions. And that's where safety behaviors become counterintuitive. They don't ever make you more safe. And it is that glass of wine you reach for or trying to save someone else, all of which is a kind of a practice of denial of the real problem that's going on. So it's a sticking plaster over whatever the real fear that's being triggered because the body's short-term defense systems are absolutely amazing and they override the longer term when actually there's something going on here. And all those defense systems were designed for tens of thousands of years ago when a short-term existential threat was over in a moment. I learned this really great thing, right? The sympathetic nervous system that we shorthand as fight or flight is actually fight, flight, feed, fatigue, fawn, or fuck. Those are the sympathetic nervous system's beautiful acronym. Those are your immediate responses. That's what the adrenaline pushes into you. And that's what you do. So you either pretend you're asleep, you, you know, fawn or beg, you fuck your way out. You know, that's the shorthand for getting out of the ship. Right. And, and most of them then drive you to some kind of safety behavior, relationships, arguments, fights, substances, etc. When you're in the middle of a global pandemic or you're having a career crisis or your relationship or whatever it is, you're in you know, a system of abuse or you're not safe, right? the actual threat, we're not designed for prolonged threat. That's where dissonance really begins to emerge. And then through dissonance, we get into like maladaptive behaviors. And then you, before you know it, things that would be abnormal become normal. So yes, deep down, I think there is something very responsible about encouraging people to be testing this. 
But we do have to get past the first wave because the first wave is, well, that does really make me feel uncomfortable, actually. You know, and there are moments where there are very positive things you can do. And it's, it's in psychological terms, the difference between safety behaviors and coping strategies. Safety behaviors are generally short-term fixes that in the long term aren't going to serve you very well. And a coping strategy would be, I can feel that feeling. I know why I want to be a safety behavior, et cetera. I can choose whether that's a healthy thing that's going to be good for me right now, or, and this is all about updating the Bayesian model of the brain, which is a belief that the brain is just a prediction engine. And all it does is permanently go, what are these next three things in front of me? Are they going to cause me at risk? Have I done them before? Okay, fine, proceed. And when it runs into one that goes wrong and, and the prediction doesn't pay off like you're expecting, then the brain gets very unhappy and has a bit of a sulk. And that's why we then feel those things as a result. So yeah, I think that we should accept that we intuitively were asking the right questions that do help people. But now we have more knowledge around it. We do have to understand the sensitivity that we're asking people to experience and therefore the kind of responsibility that comes with it, which I think always we also intuitively knew. But I can't think of anything else that's going to help us through the shit show that's going to come because it doesn't look like it's going to get any easier. And one of the big challenges I got at the end of the pilot was from John Alexander. He really enjoyed the series, and then he criticised me at the end for ending on what he thought was an individualistic tone. I think that was my, my mistake, because I, I very much feel like I was trying to end on a, on a collective tone. Because whilst the show is designed for the individual, much like Being More Pirate, it also has a collective benefit. So societies that are measurably low tolerance to uncertainty are demonstrably more susceptible to populist policies, to conspiracy theories. And like, take a look at Britain over the last couple of years, falls foul of those kind of agendas, those kind of binary decisions. We are less able to sit with ambiguity, nuance, and even people that don't look like us. Whereas societies with high uncertainty tolerance, like a South African township, who, when things descended into chaos and everyone was worried about looting recently, were able to pretty much police themselves, even when the police demonstrated that they weren't there to serve the black population, they were there to protect commercial interests. But a resilient and uncertainty tolerant community will look after itself. So was fighting over toilet rolls the sign of a high tolerance to uncertainty? No, I don't think it was. And at the next moments when we're going to rely on our communities, we need our communities to, to have that ability to stay in discomfort. You're right in asking the questions. And maybe the answer is actually it's even more useful and more valuable than we even thought it was originally. And we need to be pushing it further. We only scratch the surface. It, it gets you so far. You know, I've really been thinking about a lot of this and particularly some of the uncertainty stuff in terms of the program we're developing for the young people because we're going to talk about embodied cognition, but we'll probably not get into the research right now, really just start to test people's understanding and gut responses to things. So yeah, it is answering the questions of Be More Pirate on a much deeper level. And I do think that, you know, in response to John, as I challenge him on the show, (laughs) rules are created socially. And I think your ability to first challenge yourself and your own repetitive thoughts that are going on in your brain, which are norms that you are adhering to on a day-to-day basis because you're listening to that voice and saying, I ought to do this, or this is how things are. And if you can disrupt that and you can do something different, other people will begin to follow you. And because so much of why we don't want to break the rules is a social thing. You know, interestingly, it's not usually a dire consequence for ourselves because you know, in some respects, being the hero rebel rule breaker can be quite good. It's when you know that what you do will break ranks from a group that you feel a sense of belonging to. So I was going to ask what you think the potential for systemic change is with this, which you've kind of answered. But I also wonder if, like, you know, in terms of how to bring it to workplaces, educational settings, that sort of thing, because it is very applicable and practical and 
quite accessible, I say second time round. <laughs> yeah, this is something that I'm, I'm wrestling with because it is not where I'd like it to be less than three weeks away from it happening in terms of ticket sales. Like, you know, I am trying to create this as a business venture as well. Most consistent response that I've had posting and promoting it is, this looks fucking cool, Sam. What is it? There aren't many people scratching their bums right now thinking, God, what I really need is an interactive documentary. And I know that in a in one world, I should just call it an online course with a few interesting tweaks, but I don't want to. I don't want to partly for my ego. I don't want to partly because I genuinely believe it is an interactive documentary and we're innovating within a genre. And that's the kind of thing that really excites me. But to then sell it. Is, oh I mean, someone did say to me the other day, if you wanted to create a way to make money, this wouldn't be it. <laughs> <laughs> even though it's brilliant yeah 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 sort of venture and i take this from you and this is one of the most valuable things i've learned from you and i tell people all the time it's not about being safe i don't know you might not agree with that in present reality but that has been a guiding force of leadership for me over the last three years and i'm not turning my back on those beliefs i know them to be true and i wrestle with this a lot in many different senses, both for the advice to myself and even, you know, the advice of others and even to my kids. And I know the importance of not bringing them up to have a degree of fight in them and the curiosity and problem solving and all the places that come from that. The challenge to the long term, call it the thing that most people are looking for, and so it would be an online workshop around resilience, perhaps. And I don't think that would do justice to what we're trying to do with it. And I think the long term benefit of busting a genre open will be cultural. And when things become cultural, you know, being a pirate is called or referred to often, and I hear it said as such, way beyond me, this movement that you lead. And something has cultural value when its name shifts into a kind of almost an adjective, you know, so we're told to be more pirate by other pirates, or I'm told I'm not being very pirate. Very, very annoying. It's also deeply rewarding that it's, you know, it's got, so it's created cultural value. And in a sense, the opportunity for this to do that I think that's where it has its widest application. I think there's only so far you'd get repeating a workshop. And yes, I could get into all manner of organizations and there you go. The opportunity, the intersection where I think that gets really interesting is in its entertainment and accessible format. So I was very proud and excited when three Netflix execs scooped the last tickets to the pilot. And we had some really interesting conversations afterwards. They gave me some really excellent feedback and they really asked where I thought it could go. And they're not TV commissioners. They are two fucking impressive women, frankly. And they work on kind of strategy and operations. And they wanted me to run it again so that they could bring some of their colleagues through it because they've made some of these same realizations that uncertainty is the meta threat that the business needs to get its head around. And then they pre-booked tickets to the next series, which gave me a bit of a financial lifeline to be able to invest in it. And then they've been amazing in regularly giving me critical feedback, regularly taking a look at aspects of creating production. But I hope to get to work with them long-term. They're really amazing. The results that we've got scientifically from the team at UCL who are some of the world leaders in some of this stuff, the brain sciences team, specialist niche division, decision-making uncertainty, Dr. Bilovich, PhD, you know, award-winning scientist who knows his shit on this stuff. He put together the assessments and we got statistically significant results across various measures on such a range of issues. By no means have we recreated like CBT or anything else, but one of the scientists did say, basically, you've made a form of CBT that can be delivered by a documentary. And that's where this gets interesting. If we can open a door into Netflix or a another, but by even by having their presence and input, that begins to show me a mass communication. I got back in touch with Dr. Ming, who's one of the uncertainty experts you've seen. 
I get more an update on where we're at. And I felt obliged to kind of mention the Netflix long-term, you know, conversation, better that they hear it early. And she was very clear straight away. She was like, well, if you did this city by city, if you did this country by country, if you could measure uncertainty tolerance, and she pointed me to some new research around economies and economies that have a greater prevalence towards risk-taking and uncertainty become stronger. In this moment, if you think about things like the shift needed for companies to get to real sustainable measures, the real jumps to the kind of technologies that don't exist yet, the real benefits of like carbon zero technologies and businesses, that's not the stuff that we're seeing. I mean, there's some well-intended stuff, but mostly it falls short. If we were even to get to the measures people are advocating for, we'd still be behind where we need to be. So if we're going to make those shifts, what you need is economies, companies, leaders, very comfortable with uncertainty, and then there's a goal. Now, what would be more effective to achieve that? Like Squid Games level accessibility, or me with a very well rehearsed corporate workshop? You know, I know exactly which one it is. So yeah, to go to the place that I've never been to, and one of those scares me and one of those doesn't. I like doing interactive workshops with corporates. I'm terrified of the idea of how the fuck do I make this thing work and look good and still stand up and all of my imposter syndromes and all of that, like the challenges that I felt with the academics and make that work as a show, like that's terrifying and super exciting. So if I could determine what happened in 2023, Uncertainty Experts would be a 12-part interactive documentary on Netflix with viewership in the millions and we'd be able to measure geographies and their uncertainty tolerance and how it increased in the results of watching it. Manifest that shit. No, I'm serious though. I did hear Catherine explain everything about the reticular activating system. I also learned about it through our US pirate coaching crew in Lifted. Shout out to Mark England for his excellent explanations of how the brain filters information. Catherine mentions that her friend who now works for NASA had for years had a vision board of rockets that essentially what she was doing was priming her brain for what she wanted to happen. So the science is there. Talk about the thing that you want to make happen. There was one thing I really wanted to mention because you just mentioned Dr. Ming and we haven't talked about who the uncertainty experts are at all. We just talked about the science behind it and the part of it that's relevant to the new viewer. One of your biggest strengths is storytelling, 100%. And these stories don't fall short on that front. And I do remember you writing that early essay when you were talking about lockdown and you had started to talk to some of the young people that you used to mentor and you called them uncertainty experts. And I remember underlining it and thinking that's a good phrase. And then I caught somewhere in some of the conversations in the show that you had created a definition for the uncertainty experts, which was that you can be a success in the shadows and a success in a more mainstream way. I thought it was really interesting as a definition. Do you remember we did in lockdown that Jericho Chambers, founded by the incredible but now tragically late Robert Phillips, Margaret Heffernan was on a talk and she said something about expertise and uncertainty. And it was just when I'd done those interviews and the stories began both from those interviews and that article did really well. And I knew how much Carl Catamol, credit to him for really being the inspiration of that and the other young people, their stories really stuck with me. And then in the process of doing the first interviews, I was, wasn't sure I was going to write up as a book proposal or where I wanted to go with it. And again, you know, I nearly had a book deal at the end of last year and I wasn't relishing it. You know, our experience of putting a book out in lockdown, even though you wrote 99% of it, was still bloody hard. And also there was something about doing something that I kind of knew how to do. Not that I'm fucking JK Rowling or anything, but it's like I, I know the process that's in front of me now. So when the word documentary fell into my mind, it was so exciting. 
And I knew that I felt like an absolute imposter. Like, no one's going to believe this is a documentary sound. It's a PowerPoint that you're doing on Zoom with a survey tool. Like, get over yourself. And I remember speaking to you about it and you encouraging me because it made me feel so uncomfortable. I, I was now going to have to backfill the words and make it like, like a documentary. Now it bloody well looks like a documentary. I'm really proud of it. But that's by calling it something and then having to work my way back around it. So the criticism I got early on was from... Bruce Daisley, and I showed him some of the stories. I think he's got really, really good critical eye on things. And he said, this sounds like stories of survivor bias, mate, frankly. And I was like, oh, damn. And so I went away to really think about that survivor bias being you know, people who would have been remarkable no matter where you put them. But because they've got this incredible story of surviving, we then over-index the lessons that come out of them. So my definition became someone who'd been a success in the shadows, in the extremes of uncertainty, for so long that it had somehow kind of rewired them. They developed a different approach to that which you or I would have. And then they transitioned to the mainstream world and they used the same strategies that they developed in uncertainty and they worked again. So they're double proven. They made them a success in the shadows and then they went on and became leading lights in society using the same techniques. So Carl Loco talks about the skills he learned on the streets in the boardroom. Even Bassett talks about what he learned as a refugee applied to becoming running a business dr ming absolutely squarely puts her experience of uncertainty through near suicide gender transition everything she's been through firmly now in the midst of all of her scientific endeavors so that was the definition and that was the moment i felt i could now stand up to that original criticism and the stories began to make sense and probably also that's when the stories really began to make sense to me there were so many great sound bites in there for a point of storytelling that then when they got backed up by the science began to be anchor points for me and they really have been like excellent bits of advice that have really helped shape me as well. Yeah, I was going to ask, do you have a favourite story from them? This I really enjoyed because very few of the Uncertainty Express people have heard of. And then you get this quite emotional, almost intimate experience with them. People have their real clear favourites and the ones they really dislike. It's really fun. It's really divisive. People are like, oh, you know, I've really enjoyed this show, but I've got to tell you that person, X, you know, really like it is hilarious and of course you know we're all humans and have to have these tendencies but to me they're all like my darlings oh they're all my children i love them enough watch the edits you know i taught myself for me a pro and editing basic skills during this so i've like watched the footage a zillion times but yes morgan godwin who's a young woman from oregon who was sentenced to prison for 20 years when she was late teenager struggled with depression throughout her life she had a very normal middle class upbringing Mum ran into a lot of trouble. The family ran into financial trouble. She joined the army to try and earn some money. She got decommissioned during basic training, like which she's very clear on telling, so she doesn't sound like any kind of hero. Fell into quite a lot of habitual drug use. And a friend of hers asked her for some of her stash. She gave it to him, her best friend, and he died as a result. And then she got sentenced to 20 years for drug supply. So this is a young woman with anxiety, with a disability, with a very challenging background and with a drug dependency. 20 years high security female prison in, in America. The articulate, humble, good human nature. We laughed so much in the interview and cried. She's still struggling with her role in that death. And she taught herself law and she's just graduating. She taught herself languages. She's now this fantastic, from what I can see of social media, what Morgan sends of her, a woman in this glorious relationship that she's very, very proud of. She's really like of pulling her world together and she was part of a team that won this landmark the first of its kind legal victory in the united states ever in terms of legalization of different types of drugs but her, this case was specifically around the opioid crisis of which she's very familiar and you know it's widely known there's a big relationship between big pharma its role in drug 
dependency culture. And so it's amazing, you know, what she's managed to achieve. And she absolutely credits strategies, techniques that she developed during prison to do this. And then there's just something about her honesty of self. Her early life is like all PlayStations and after school sports. So she kind of shows this uncertainty can happen to anybody, how things can escalate, how you can get played a bad hand. And her coping strategies are bloody basic. Like at first when I was interviewing her, I was like, oh dear, this hasn't got quite the grandeur of some of the others, but they're simple and they're accessible. And the reason I got pointed towards her was she wrote an article that absolutely mirrored mine. It's lessons for lockdown from life inside. Sadly for her, she was the one who had to go through prison. I was just, <laughs> once again, stole other people's stories. And in all of the interviews, I really enjoyed speaking to them all a great deal. Maybe, and, you know, this finishes where we began, a bit like where I saw you when you came on. You know, there's someone that I respect so much that she slightly puts me on edge. And each time I send her an update, most of them, I'm like, great, updating you where we are. And Morgan's slightly waiting for her reply. I'm slightly <laughs> expecting her to, like, judge me or be, oh, oh, come on, Sam. And she's always super supportive and really into the project, but I look up to her a lot. I think she's really powerful from watching her. And the most effective strategies often are the simplest ones, the irony of it all. I keep saying this over and over again and you have to second guess yourself because you go, so I'm going to take this seriously. But yeah, I think when you hear it from somebody who's gone through such an experience like that, you have to start to take it seriously. You know, if we're not paying attention to that, then what are we paying attention to? And that's when it comes together, right? She talks about, she radicalized gratitude, which is just a great phrase anyway. You know, there was all those kind of books, weren't there, about gratitude. And it's, you know, it's slightly annoying. Uh, You know, I don't want to say thank you for this. But what she does when she created a system in prison where she created radical gratitude, so she'd force herself to be grateful for small things. So she would sit with her blankets and really, really inhabit experience of gratitude. So warm blankets, I am grateful for these. I've got these blankets. And at first I was like, yes, you know, it sounds good. Yeah, sure. This is going to be a great sound pipe, but I, I, I'm already a bit, you know, there are many concepts that get slightly oversold. And I thought gratitude had been one of those a few years ago, but it was speaking to the scientists. And they're like, oh, okay, well, this is a very impressive aspect of emotional regulation and uh, activation of the parasympathetic nervous system. I'm like, Whoa. And so what we described, uh, that's a really bad impression because Catherine doesn't talk like that at all, does she? Um, <laughs> <laughs> found this amazing science communicator he's, he's bloody brilliant and did a terrible impression of it. so we talked about the sympathetic nervous system right the fuck fight flee all the f's earlier on the opposite of that counter is the parasympathetic nervous system and the shorthand for that is called rest and digest so everything that enables us to calm down and it releases a counter set of chemicals that do so and what morgan's doing is by forcing her brain to accept gratitude to consider gratitude to conceive of gratitude eventually her body starts to feel grateful now if you can just even consider it for a second what does it feel like when you're really grateful when someone saved the day when you you found that file you thought that was lost you know you find 10 pounds in the wallet when you really didn't you know when you're oh thank god and if you inhabit that feeling oh thank god then the body immediately goes oh right everything must be okay i must be safe so by creating gratitude at an emotional level for her blankets the parasympathetic nervous system was activated, which then destabilized and stood down those alert systems. And she regulated her emotions by creating this experience of gratitude. A lot of those concepts are in the book, The Body Keeps the School. I don't know if you read, but I think it was Veronica who told me to read it initially. And I know a couple of the other pirates who quoted it to me, but it's very long, very dense, very academic and has deep case studies on deep trauma. You know, a lot of it is to do with cases of sexual abuse, childhood abuse, and it's not like reading. So if you wanted to understand some of this brain science and body science around anxiety and 
this is this is the thing that you need to watch and listen to uncertainty experts <laughs> that book is like another level <laughs> i mean this genuinely like there's so much interesting information in that book that does tally with this but it's just not a thing you could really go oh just read this because you couldn't because it's that <laughs> this is a really really brilliant way to segue into understanding things like emotional regulation and negativity bias and how your brain is talking to itself and just how it works a bit more and i think through the stories of these incredible characters just makes for such compelling viewing. And I feel like I can say this to you because I'm not involved in it. And I'm not really blowing our own trumpet here. I, I mean it like it's such a good new avenue for some of the concepts that have come out of pirates and everything. So yay. <laughs> I'm really good. And testimony to once again in my life, thanking the young people of Liberty who are my original pirates and original uncertainty experts for what they showed me. And then the pirates that we've met both the ones we wrote about and the ones who formed the community again teaching me the same and allowing me to retell their stories and the uncertainty experts now is that is in the same thing all of them platforms to enable people to be more of themselves than they might have thought and all of them guided along the way by stories both hopefully allow us to reappraise members of society that we might otherwise judge and in doing so in the mirrors of them see more of ourselves so yeah, for me, it feels very consistent. And that point of the inaccessibility of the science, even in there, because once you are primed these things, you see them everywhere. The toughest bit of reading for me was in the science paper. So similar to the book, like really dense, really hard. And they're so fucking lame in terms of their metaphors. It's like almost going back to, to school textbooks. Like nearly it's about kids dropping their marbles. Like they just don't have a good storytelling capacity. <laughs> I met the most remarkable pirate. There's this website called Sci-Hub because there's many of these papers are ring-fenced and paywalled. And Sci-Hub is this thought to be young Russian lady who's hacked so many of the scientific databases around the world and has made them all freely available so people have access to it. So without this crazy pirate, who's made so much scientific research available, I wouldn't have been able to get my head around the academic rigor and research of the show. So, you know, it's like we said many times, when you raise your pirate flag, you will find other pirates come circling around you. And it's in that sense of crew building that we're going to sort this shit out. The Uncertainty Experts airs on the 9th of November. And if you go to the website, uncertaintyexperts.com, you can get a taste of some of the people you'll meet on this rather unusual journey. And you can take the uncertainty test and get a feel for what it's all about. Of course, also purchase tickets to the show, which are discounted until the end of October. And there's an even bigger discount for you pirates. Just drop me a line, alex at bewillpirate.com, if you'd like to get the code.